Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. She spent months investigating what happened to Shannon Hanchett, a Norman mother who died in the Cleveland County Jail in December. Whitney, remind us who Shannon Hanchett was and why her death sparked so much outrage. Well, Shannon was a mother of two, and she was a well-known, especially in Norman. Uh, most people knew her as the Cookie Queen because she owned a bakery on Main Street called the Cookie Cottage. She worked for the Department of Health before that, and she was an LGBTQ advocate. So she was really... Um, a big part of the Norman community. And back in November, she was arrested during what police called a mental health crisis because she wouldn't stop calling 911. She was asking police to do a welfare check on her son. They arrested her, took her straight to jail, and she was placed under critical watch because of her mental health. And she died there about 12 days later. Now, your most recent story uh, had some new details about Shannon Hanchett's final days. What was the latest? Well, I got a hold of a jail inspection report that was uh, filled out back in January. So that was about a month after Shannon died. And it showed that detention officers failed to perform vital safety checks on detainees like Shannon who were in critical care. So these are people in jail who are, you know, suicidal or violent, maybe struggling with their mental health, basically in some sort of severe um, condition, they are put on what the jail calls critical watch. And those folks are required to be checked on, you know, a detention officer has to to put eyes on them at least every 15 minutes. So the jail inspector found that on December 5th and 6th, just a couple days before Shannon died, detention officers were not doing those checks. And why are those 15 minute checks so important? Well, a lot can happen in 15 minutes when someone is in distress. For example, uh, there was a man named Joe Allen Sims, who was also in the Cleveland County Jail. He was there in February of this year, and he was also on critical watch. On February 24th, a detention officer checked on him at 3.12 p.m., and some video footage showed that he hanged himself 16 minutes after that. He waited for the detention officer to leave, um, and then they did not check back in on him for about an hour and a half. So, again, that happened 16 minutes after the detention officer had checked on him, but they actually didn't find his body for about an hour and a half. Now, you looked at other jail inspection reports for comparison. How common is that uh, violation with missing those checks? It's actually very common. So last year's inspection of the Cleveland County Jail also found dozens of missed site checks for detainees in critical care. But it's not just Cleveland County Jail. Um, each year, the health department analyzes these violations from the inspections that they do all over the state. And for the past two years, fire safety violations were the most cited, but site checks were second on that list. About 30 jails had those citations.
Now, did the inspector find any other violations at the Cleveland County Jail? Yes, there were actually three violations cited. So the missed safety checks on critical care uh, detainees, that was number one. They also missed hourly safety checks, which are kind of the same idea as the 15-minute checks, but those are required for every inmate in the jail. And they had a faulty smoke detector. That was the third. Now, there were two other detainees who died around that same time that Shannon Hanson did, right? Did those violations contribute to their deaths as well? That's right. So in December, shortly after Shannon died, another woman who was also waiting for a mental health evaluation at the jail died. Her name was Catherine Milano. She was a grandmother from Noble, and she was arrested during a mental health crisis as well for violating a protective order. Uh, She was found unconscious in a cell, in a medical cell, and was taken to the hospital where she died. And then, of course, Joe Allen Sims, who we talked about, who died uh, by suicide in February. Now, the medical examiner has not ruled on any of these deaths yet, so there are still a lot of unanswered questions as to whether these site checks specifically contributed. Uh, Now that the jail has been cited for those violations, what happens next? Well, the inspection reports include plans of action, but those are very vague. So for missed site checks, for instance, the required action is to interview jail staff who were involved, uh, review the jail's policies, and then basically determine if any changes are needed. And that's all up to the jail to decide. Inspectors are supposed to come back and check that the violations were fixed, but that typically doesn't happen until the next annual inspection they're not doing. Um, you know, extra visits to check on those in most cases. And many of the inspections that I've seen have reoccurring violations, such as Cleveland County Jail. They've missed these site checks the last couple of years. So these inspectors are from the health department, and they just really don't have much power over these jails uh, who are not fixing these problems. The one thing they can do is they can file a complaint with the local prosecutor or the attorney general for reoccurring violations, but they told me that's really rare. And since 2019, they've only filed one complaint that was on the Oklahoma County Jail. All right. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read uh, Whitney's coverage of the violations at the Cleveland County Jail, as well as other topics related to vulnerable populations in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Munnies has been following the long road to a budget agreement by the GOP supermajority in the Oklahoma legislature. Paul, after Republican lawmakers broke their deadlock on education funding and private school tax credits last week, they still had to finalize the budget. What's the latest on that process? Yeah, so there was a lot of feeling uh, among some folks at the Capitol and and a lot of observers that uh, once they had gotten past this big hurdle with education funding, which was kind of a session-long fight between Republicans in the House and the Senate, um, that they basically would be clear sailing to a budget agreement. And 
that was looking like it was going to be the case towards the end of last week, and then Monday hit, and we kind of hit another impasse on some of that. In fact, we had late Sunday night, there was some budget bills released um, on publication, and there was multiple meeting notices for uh, joint committees of appropriations on budget in both the House and the Senate. Uh, they did not end up meeting on Monday. Um, they're going to be back at it uh, this later this week, um, but we don't know exactly what's going on with that. And there was no formal announcement by either the House or the Senate that they'd reached some kind of deal. Now, what do uh, why rather do lawmakers wait this long to do a budget? It's really the only thing they have to do under the state constitution, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, part of it is because there's also policy that goes on during a session, which we all see. And so some of those support for any package or any kind of agreement is tied to that budget process for the policy bills that members want and need uh, to take back to their districts. But also it's, it's partly just because um, there's still just differences in philosophy and spending, even among, among Republicans on what they should be doing. So obviously the, with the GOP control, uh, both the House and the Senate and a GOP governor, um, they all have general um, kind of conservative philosophies, but they all have different ideas of what they should be spending the money on. And it gets to the end almost every session like this. Now, what did Democrats have to say about that process? Well, Democrats obviously uh, ran a state for multiple generations until the last 15 or so years. Um, and so they kind of did the same thing during their budget process when they're in control. Uh, but now they're out of power and are obviously still concerned about the process as it is. Uh, they claim that there's no uh, public participation when it gets to the end like this. Uh, bills are released uh, at night and then there's uh, committee votes scheduled early the next day. Members don't have time to digest what they're voting on. And stuff is done very quickly with very little transparency or even public input. And they make the the uh, point time and time again at multiple times this session and last year that um, it's just no way to run a state when you've got a lot of money going to all these agencies and there's a lot of need out there by the public. Lawmakers called themselves into a special session to do the budget this year, right? That's right. They're in what's called a concurrent special session. So now they're doing that as well as kind of finishing up the regular session, which has to end by May 26 um, by constitutional standards. This has kind of given them a little bit more time to, to deal with some of the budget issues than they would have in a regular session. And so they're kind of going back and forth between this uh, extraordinary special session for budget stuff and back to the regular sessions for the, the Senate to do some executive nomination confirmations and some uh, possible overrides of policy bills that were uh, vetoed by Governor Stitt earlier this year. Now, we saw a glimpse of at least part of a possible budget agreement on Monday, right? That's right. Yeah, there was one of the uh, 51 bills in the House's uh, JCAB process that was released uh, early, early um, overnight Sunday into Monday morning. One of that bill, one of those bills was kind of a general appropriations bill. Uh, it had about, I think, $13 billion in spending totally. Um, and it was very broad-based, kind of top-of-the-line agency gets this, agency gets that. There was no details within that agency. Those are kind of uh, in the other bills that are kind of associated with that. But we kind of got a spreadsheet in terms of what they were looking at. Many agencies were flat. Uh, of course, that was kind of a uh, working proposal since none of the JCABs actually met on Monday. They're scheduled to meet again on Tuesday uh, and possibly get this, this process moving again. But that may change. So there's nothing we can really say definitively about that budget total right now. Now how transparent are other states when it comes to finalizing a budget? 
Yeah, so when you look at what other states do, some of them are, are kind of in the same spot as Oklahoma. They kind of leave it to the last minute to hit that deadline. Um, but some states are actually pretty good about it in terms of at least having the public involved and voting uh, in public budget bill- bills and allowing public comments on that. In fact, that's been one of the things that Oklahoma has been criticized for recently, not just on budget bills, but on general policy bills that the legislature, is how much the public is involved. A lot of times it's up to the committee chairman uh, if a bill is going through a committee to, to decide who speaks on that. Other states, even like Texas, has a very formal process for public, public participation at the committee level. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, because these are elected officials and that, you know, they want to con- con- have their power um, in, in line with what they need for elections, um, they kind of leave it to the last minute. And there's a lot of unheard, uh, kind of unknown things in other states as well. Now, what else do Oklahoma lawmakers have to do? Uh, We have the regular session supposed to end this week, and uh, the special session is going on concurrently. What do they have to get done? That's right. Yeah, there's a few kind of um, bills from the federal uh, American Rescue Plan funding that came up as well. So they're working on those, getting those through the process, some additional projects, and that that, uh, $1.8 billion chunk of money from the federal government. Um, they're also looking at, um, like I said earlier, the, the Senate is doing some executive nominations for cabinet secretaries and di- various boards and commissions. And then, of course, there's a possibility of some overrides for vetoes. Uh, Governor Stitt had at least 20 vetoes in one day uh, among several policy bills, including one of those that uh, that, that would sunset, that renews the sunset for uh, the Oklahoma Educational Television Authority. Um, now, the latest glimpse of the budget that we saw yesterday uh, preserves the funding, holds that at zero, uh, sorry, at, uh, at stable levels for that that agency. Uh, but at the same time, um, they would sunset next year if that veto is not overridden for OETA. And there's a couple other bills like that, that there's still a lot of um, folks that, that were asking the, 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 gov- the legislature to override on, on the governor's vetoes. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul Money's coverage of the Oklahoma legislature at our website, oklahomawatch.org. In this segment, I am with Oklahoma Watch Executive Editor Mike Sherman. Uh, We are going to talk about a tradition in the news industry that goes back many decades and continues today, and that's uh, the tradition of summer interns, which uh, for many years have been really an integral part of uh, developing news journalists and and the business as a whole. Mike, tell us uh, maybe a little about the background of interns in the business in Europe experience with them? Well, it's a favorite part for you and I, Ted, and I've heard you talk a lot uh, about your time at the Journal Record and uh, getting uh, getting interns every summer. First of all, it's an injection of ideas and enthusiasm for our industry, which is always nice. You know, and the newsroom is full of people who ask lots of tough questions, including uh, questions about our own industry. So every summer, here comes people with uh, who are working off the ideals. Um, for years and years and years, it was a test drive. It was an opportunity to see who we might hire in the future. And often, if you look around newsrooms in Oklahoma and elsewhere, they're full of people who first interned with them. Um, 
every editor, back in the days when newsrooms used to be full of uh, reporters and editors, there was a, uh, a battle to get the best interns and a sort of a sense of pride about who was the first one to publish a big story to get on page one. Those days have changed a lot, but we have three really good ones coming into the Oklahoma Watch newsroom this summer, and it's a chance to sort of get back in the business of uh, grooming, helping, uh, and watching young journalists produce. Now, uh, you know, some folks listening might not know the uh, sort of the history of the industry, but uh, for many, many years until really not not all that long ago, uh, the news business, newspapers in particular, were more of a trade, right? That uh, people came in in their teens as a as a copy boy, as they were called back in the days, right? Running uh, pieces of paper between departments, and um, they essentially apprenticed, right? They moved up, became an intern. They they uh, got a chance to be a cub reporter, maybe on night cops beat or something like that, and and eventually earned their stripes in the newsroom. And that's changed over the decades. The last uh, probably 30 years or so, uh, it's become much more of a uh, deal where people go to college and major in journalism and and uh, get a bachelor's degree or a master's and then and then come practice after that and an internship or two somewhere around the country. How how do you think that that change in the development of young journalists has affected the business? Well, I actually think it's been more standardized. You know, you talked about this. I didn't. I never heard of any internships when I was in college back in the '80s. I started in that sort of apprentice mind. So I was a form charter, which is a strange name, but it was basically the people who did the results in the sports section, uh, the the small type box scores all kinds of bowling scores, golf scores, that kind of stuff came in late at uh, early in the morning and produced them for an afternoon paper. There wasn't really an, a, a formal internship where an editor or editors went and talked to people from colleges and 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 brought them in as writers, you know, reporters. We were doing sort of the grunt work as we like to talk about it. Now, one of the great developments in the last 20 years I think is they get to come in and be real reporters. Nobody goes and gets coffee. Nobody's typing up um, letters to the editor. Everybody's really doing what reporters really do. And it's it's a competitive situation. We don't get the, we don't always get our first round draft picks. There's lots of uh, news organizations that are interviewing the same people we are, trying to get them. So uh, I think it has benefited news organizations and reporters. Now, I think back when you and I started in the business, it was possible at least that uh, somebody could walk in the door and do the fake it till you make it uh, way of getting into the business, right? If you you wanted to be a reporter badly enough, you could if you could talk your way through the door, uh, anything to get inside the building and hang on long enough, sooner or later, somebody was going to let you write a story, right? Do you think that's still possible anywhere today? I I think maybe at some really small town uh, papers, unfortunately, they're, they're kind of driving, uh, drying up. I remember the first byline I ever had was for the Howard County Times, a paper that I delivered, a weekly paper in, in suburban uh, Maryland, and uh, I was playing a basketball game. 
And I talked to the guy who covered high school sports, and he said, hey, uh, would you ever like to write about this? you like to talk about it. And before long, I was covering basketball games instead of uh, playing in them. But uh, in, in our situation, first of all, there's not that many newsrooms to walk into anymore. You know, knock on the door. There's no receptionist. It doesn't really finding the newsroom anymore is is really uh, something different. And second of all, the the standards have gone up. I mean, uh, those interns that we get to look at, we're lo- we're we're doing reference checks. We're v- reviewing their clips. How many people? What kind of sourcing do they have in their stories? What kind of enterprise? How? What did they go to that next level of reporting that that was unexpected? As you say, if you could type a lot of times, you could get a, a, a position, a an apprentice position. Well, tell us about the three interns coming to Oklahoma Watch this summer and uh, where you found them and and what you're hoping to see from them. Well, you know, first, this is the first summer since you and I have worked at Oklahoma Watch where it it feels like it used to. You know, uh, we had our first time, it was all virtual in 2020. And slowly uh, in 2021 and uh and last year started getting back into it, but we'll have three interns this summer, and they're coming from different uh, different opportunities. We're a nonprofit news organization, so the funding of interns, we rely on um, some partners to help us pay for them. So in as much foundation is fun- funding one of our interns, and that intern is Jazz Wolf. Uh, Jazz is a uh, senior-to-be at the University of Oklahoma, was worked as an editor for the OU Daily, which is one of the best uh, student-run newspapers and websites in the country. Jazz has a background and an interest in science writing, which is a little different. Um, Jazz has reported on a lot of on-campus security issues. Uh, Jazz had a really interesting story that caught my eye about uh, low staffing on OU uh, campus security and what effect that was having on the campus. Did a lot of records requests, extensive interviewing. Jazz will be working with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations. that was sort of a request pairing. Whitney happens to be an OU grad, one of their first multimedia journalists down there, and uh, they, they make a good pairing. So that's one of our interns. Another one um, is funded through the INN, the Institute for Nonprofit News, which we're uh, members of, and that's Yasmin Sadi. Yasmin is a University of Missouri uh, junior-to-be. Yasmin had a really good internship last summer in which she did a lot of reporting on um, immigrant and um, diverse populations in rural Kansas. A story that caught my eye is a growing Muslim community in Garden City, Kansas, and how making their way has, they, they've progressed, they've become a real community, but they've also come up against um, some cultural issues and issues with the, the government that really uh, held them back. She also wrote a really cool story about a uh, newspaper in West Texas that was uh, family-run forever, and now they'd run out of family, and they were trying to find, keep this paper going, and the vital role that small-town newspapers play and what happens when you run out of people who want to operate those stories. Really cool storytelling. Um, the Rural News Network is also funding this internship. And uh, uh, Yasmin will work with um, uh, Jennifer Palmer, who's our education writer, sort of a mentor. 
to her, but I, we, we have an idea of, of that she's going to be able to do some reporting in rural Oklahoma, lots of issues uh, following them. And then our third intern is uh, Ainsley Martinez from the University of Central Oklahoma. Um, Ainsley comes to us with some really cool data chops. She helped teach a data journalism uh uh, class at the University of Oklahoma, sort of as a, a, a teaching assistant. Ainsley has been an editor for the student uh, newspaper and website there, The Vista, which is my alma mater, and I worked there myself. Uh, one of our board members, uh, Joe Height, is, is, is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and helped us spot Ainsley. And Ainsley is going to work with Paul Monies, who's done a lot of accountability reporting, who's our uh, legislative, uh, key legislative reporter, and, and focuses on issues like that. So that's the pairing. Those are our three. And we, we're looking forward to a cool summer with them. Now, uh, we talked about uh, what we hope to get out of them. What do you hope they get out of us? Well, I hope that between the two of us uh, and and our staff, they get a real taste of what it's like to be an investigative reporter, um, and get a taste uh, and and get the experience of having worked closely with a Jennifer Palmer, who knows how to dig and dig and dig and not take the first answer um, that public officials give them, who who centers her, all of her activities on accountability reporting. And so I hope they they go back with some sharpened knives for for their reporting there. I hope that that, uh, they get some extra data skills. We just had a great opportunity from the investigative reporters and editors. They sent a trainer to our newsroom for two days and helped us refresh a lot of our skills when it comes to data reporting, investigative interviews, uh, backgrounding like a boss. I hope to convey some of that stuff to them. And then, um, you know, I think the, the, the emphasis on storytelling, you know, there's such a, um, you know, focusing our stories on central conflicts, focusing our reporting on complicating the narrative and not just accepting the, the, the story that we're giving, but looking at the, not just one side of the story, but the, but the multifacets of the story. And I think just living and breathing in a newsroom like that, I, uh, I hope really the, the takeaway is that they'll want to stay in the business and they'll still have that, that flame kindled that they that the burns for journalism. Well, I, I agree, and I will go back to something you said early on about uh, you, you know feeling proud of them, and uh, when you see them later on in their careers, and you know we've got some scattered around Oklahoma that interned uh, with me, and I'm sure that some interned with you at one time or another. Not all in print. I've got a couple that were uh, interns in my shop that are now doing radio or uh, doing broadcast somewhere, uh, and a few that that uh, went on to do other kinds of things went on to law school or whatever. But um, if you've uh, done the internship thing long enough, it's always uh, fun to watch them over the years and see where they end up and uh, feel like you played a played a part in getting them started. We knew them when we've talked about this. You know, there's somebody at um, Zillow who was an intern for me and, and Emily Hefter. She's a high ranking person at Zillow. Um, one of their lead content people. She was an intern for me on the news side at the Tennessean. Her first story was somebody called the newsroom and said, Hey, I was just doing some gardening in my backyard and there's a 
casket buried here. And uh, I saw poltergeist, and I don't think that's a good thing. The second thing is it's not a usual casket. There's a window, and there's a skeleton looking right back at me through the window in this casket. You want to send a reporter out? I said, hey, Emily, head out to Antioch, and let's figure out what's going on in this guy's backyard. And she wrote a page one story about it. So, uh, yeah, they're lawyers, they're attorney, they're, 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 they're Zillow, they're, they're, they're working at uh, heads of digital for Walmart. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of my association with these young people. They've restored my faith in the, organiz- in, in the institution of journalism. So hopefully these three will do that, too. Right. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, be sure to keep an eye on our website, oklahomawatch.org, this summer and see the work of our three interns that will be with us over the next couple of months. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.